Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, through the preaching of your word, may your spirit direct our hearts into your love and preservation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Verse 1 tells us it's two days before Passover, the appointed time that Israel celebrated its inheritance. Passover commemorated the liberation from the nation from Egypt when God sent a plague that took the lives of the Egyptians firstborn. But the Israelites were spared by dabbing their doorways with the blood of a slaughtered lamb. Now, Mark chapters 11 through 13 set things up by foretelling the coming destruction of the temple, which is, as we've seen, the destruction of the old order. Jerusalem in the temple is no longer going to be the focus of God's presence and activity. So what will take its place? Well, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, prepares us to see the answer to that question. In the place of the temple will be set up a new Passover. Now, two days before the Passover, the authorities are plotting Jesus' death. But they don't want to do it openly because they don't want to cause a disturbance with the crowds, as we see in verses 1 and 2. Jesus partakes of a meal, which is probably the same event described in John chapter 12. And if this is the case, then the woman in question is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Mary comes and breaks an alabaster flask of expensive perfume and pours it on the Lord's head, as we see in verse 3. She breaks the flask, which ensures it is all used. This is a complete sacrifice. Jesus is dredged in fragrant oil. What has she done? She has anointed his body for burial. Now, some of the disciples are indignant, Judas leading the way, according to John chapter 12. Judas here is playing the role of chief antagonist, and John chapter 12 works this out with more detail than Mark 14. But Judas is there, and he's asking, why did she waste 
expensive perfume. Why didn't she sell it and give the money to the poor? See, Judas and apparently some of the other disciples are angry. Why? Well, they claim the valuable resource is wasted in verse 4. I mean, hadn't Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell everything and give to the poor? And now here's this woman who's just waltzed in, and now she's wasting this expensive and valuable resource. See, the disciples, even after all of Jesus' teaching on the subject, the disciples are still confused about money. They misunderstood the story of the rich young ruler. They misunderstood the story of the widow's might. And now they misunderstand Mary's extravagance. But Jesus tells them to leave her alone because she has done a good work in verse 6. Jesus' point is that the disciples will have many opportunities to help the poor, but no more opportunities to minister directly to Jesus. And in this way, Mary provides a telling contrast with the limited outlook of the disciples. They are concerned, that is, if you interpret all that's happening here with the best of intentions, the disciples here are concerned with the customary practice of helping the poor during the Passover. But this concern, worthy as it may be, is subordinate to other things. The concern for helping the poor is subordinate in significance to this occasion. Because this is Jesus's hour. His passion predictions are nearly complete. The poor, in this case, can wait. Especially since helping the poor gets its fullest meaning through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Mary is the only one who understands Jesus' poverty, that Jesus is among the poor. She does what she can to prepare Jesus for burial. We see in verse 8, she anoints him, even though she may not realize the full meaning of her actions. But in the Old Testament, kings, priests, and prophets were anointed with oil. And since Jesus is all three, king, priest, and prophet, it's fitting that she used the entire amount on him. The Lord then says that her wisdom will be declared until the end of the world. So that's the application of verse 9, my words right now. And immediately after this, Judas makes his decision to betray the Lord. The story here of the anointed king, Jesus, teaches us that we, too, can testify to the authority of Christ in at least three ways. First, we testify of Christ in the way we bury the dead. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And so whether she realizes it or not, Mary anointed the body for burial. In the Old Testament, the Hebrews had several burial customs, including the physical preparation of the body. You see this especially in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 23, Abraham takes meticulous care to bury his wife, Sarah. In Genesis 25, Isaac and Ishmael bury Abraham with Sarah. In Genesis 35, Jacob and Esau bury Isaac. In Genesis 47, Jacob orders his bones to be returned to the land of his fathers. In Genesis 50, 
Joseph says that when God rescues Israel from Egypt, they should take his bones with them. You see, there's a pattern here. The Hebrews prepare the body for burial. They take special care on how the body will be buried. The Hebrews do not cremate. Even though cremation was practiced by the Canaanites and later the Greeks and the Romans. But in the Old Testament, there's a repeated pattern. The body is prepared for burial. And so what we're seeing here in Mark chapter 14, by using the perfume, Mary is walking in this practice of preparing the body. And she, as we see here, breaking the oil, using it all on Jesus in this way, she's really embellishing the typical preparation. And the perfume should be viewed as a symbol of sacrifice and immortality. You see, when we think of death, we think of the grave and we think of the end. The perfume, though, raises our eyes from gazing upon the end or the grave to envision renewal, to envision resurrection. The perfume is an aid, a symbol that helps us imagine the bigger truth to help us imagine resurrection. The body is anointed, in this case with Jesus, because it is to be resurrected. Now, the English word for cemetery means sleeping place, which properly implies that the grave is not permanent. And this is not merely a New Testament concept. We see this truth revealed in the Old Testament as well. The grave is not permanent. There's this incredible verse in Job chapter 19, verse 25 through 26. Listen to it. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. It's harder to imagine a more clear prediction of resurrection than that. The grave is not permanent. And of course, we see this explicitly and repeatedly in the New Testament. For example, Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 says that baptism is the promise of the future resurrection. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says that he who raised Christ will give life also to your mortal body. Philippians chapter 3 verse 21 says Christ will transform your lowly body. And then there's all the things that are said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on the matter. So what does all this mean for us? Well, it means that burial is a time for testimony. Jesus' burial testifies to his future resurrection. And when we bury our fellow Christians, our friends, our loved ones, our family, that burial testifies to Christ's resurrection. Burial, rather than cremation, gives the fullest testimony to the truth of resurrection. It's a symbol. It's a testimony. Now, does that mean cremation is a sin? Well, Scripture does not explicitly say that cremation is a sin. Nevertheless, most images in Scripture of burning bodies is that of judgment, with 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 as an exception. In Scripture, burning bodies is a symbol of judgment. 
For example, Amos chapter 2, Moab desecrated the bones of the king of Edom by burning them. In Joshua chapter 7, Achan and his household are stoned for their grievous sin, and then their bodies and possessions are burned in judgment. And so, really, Scripture doesn't frame this as a, is it a sin or is it not a sin category. It's more, what testimony are you giving? What testimony are you giving in the way you handle the dead? The testimony of cremation is a testimony of judgment, which, if you're burying a Christian, then contradicts the facts of the person you're burying, or in this case, tending to. But when you bury someone, you're testifying as well. You're testifying to the hope of resurrection, which, if you're burying a Christian, that testimony of burial is an accurate presentation of the person and their soul. And so, Scripture doesn't say that cremation is a sin. It doesn't say that directly. It doesn't really frame the issue in that way. What we're talking about is an opportunity, an opportunity for testimony. It's about symbolism. It's about testimony. And so, you should not fret if a loved one of yours has been cremated. Maybe that cremation testified to judgment, but... Rest assured, if they're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that testimony is inaccurate. That testimony can't reverse what the Lord has done in that person's soul. That person today is with Christ. What's happened, though, is an inaccurate testimony was given. So you shouldn't fret if a loved one of yours has been cremated. That's not going to reverse their status with the Lord. But... As you make decisions for yourself and family members on this matter, I encourage you to make the fullest testimony possible. And if it's within your power, to choose burial over cremation. And so the first way we testify of Christ is in the way we bury the dead. Second, we testify of Christ in the way we care for the poor. We see that's a central issue in these verses. For example, verse 7, Jesus says, For you always have the poor with them. Why? Why are the poor always with them? Jesus here is referring to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, which talks about the sabbatical year that takes place at the end of every seven years. So, for example, Deuteronomy 15, 2, Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. And what is the result if you follow God's plan? What is the result if you follow God's law? Deuteronomy 15.4, there will be no poor among you. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus here says the exact opposite. Jesus says, you always have the poor with them. Do you see his point? If Israel had obeyed the law, there would be no poor. Deuteronomy 15.4 is very explicit. If you had obeyed the law in your many years in, this, in, in the history of, of Israel, you would have no poor. But Jesus says you always have the poor with you. Why do you always have the poor with them? Because you disobeyed the Lord. Because Israel, for generation after generation, disobeyed the Lord. And as you then update this to the first century, now you've got Israel in the first century, now it's even more complex. Now you've got a situation where they've been disobedient, 
They've been conquered. They've been defeated. They've been exiled. Then they're returned. And now they're under the rule of the Roman Empire. So now, applying the law of God is even more complex. Israelites now don't just owe money to other Israelites. Now they owe money to the temple industrial complex, which is run by the Roman government and the elite ruling class of Jews. In fact, the Jewish war that begins in AD 66 started in part because an Israelite mob set fire to the house of Ananias, the high priest. Then they burned the public buildings and the archives that kept the records of debt. This, among other things, set off the war between Rome and Jerusalem, which concluded in AD 70 when the Romans burned the temple. So there's a lot of background to all this discussion of the poor in these verses. So now, with, with that context, look at the disciples' opposition to wasting the perfume. Pick up now in verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Notice how Judas talks about helping the poor. We as Christians must be careful to talk about helping the poor in a distinctively Christian way. The world today loves talking about helping the poor. The world today, much like Judas, loves to talk about helping the poor. And when the world, when the federal government talks about helping the poor, they usually are following the Judas program, not the Jesus program. Jacques Ellul has pointed out that there is a certain political ideology affront today that leads to what he calls the divination of the poor. Basically, it's putting the poor up on this pedestal, that they're high and above everyone else. And so the political ideology that's common today causes people to divinize the poor. Similarly, when Judas criticizes the use of expensive ointment to anoint Jesus, it's out of concern for the poor. Notice the pattern. Those who set Christ aside and then make arguments to help the poor are following not in the steps of Jesus, they're following in the steps of Judas. And so you have to realize what's really going on when modern politicians divinize the poor and then try to make you feel guilty if you don't play along with the, the welfare scheme that we have today. What's going on here is they're using the poor as a prop, usually to criticize successful people in the name of equality, thus training people to resent those who are wealthier than them. And so when you listen to that, it gets really complicated because we as Christians know we're supposed to be concerned for the poor. This is obvious both in the Old Testament law, how God built into the whole system a concern for the poor, as we just saw in Deuteronomy 15, and then the repeated statements of Christ and the apostles on the matter. So we know we should be concerned about the poor, but that doesn't mean that we should follow the Judas program that's presented to us. See, helping the poor is biblical. We see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, give to the needy so that your giving may be in secret. We see it with the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. 
So we should be concerned about helping the poor. But we must never be like Judas and exploit the poor and disingenuously collect money for the poor only to take the money for our personal advancement or our personal agenda. You see, Judas is not actually concerned for the poor. Did you know it's within the realm of possibility that for those who collect the money, remember Judas was the money collector, that for those who collect the money, they can say they're concerned for the poor, but they're really not. That's a category of reality. That's within the realm of possibility. So Judas says he's concerned for the poor. Shouldn't we believe him? No, because he's a thief. He controls the money box. He centralizes the control of money, and then he takes from it all along saying, no, let's help the poor, let's help the poor. Should Christians go along with that way of helping the poor? No, that's the Judas program of helping the poor. Those who use the poor as a prop, talking piously about the poor and then browbeating you if you don't agree with their agenda, virtue signaling about the poor, centralizing the control of money only to plunder it for their own benefit, they are following the Judas program, not the Jesus program. And so, in this passage, we testify of Christ first in the way we bury the dead, and second, in the way we care for the poor. And third, we testify of Christ in the way we carry out our ministry. Notice what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, you will not always have me. Of course, he's talking about how he's going to die. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to then ascend to be with the Father. Jesus is with them now in person. He's saying, you will not always have me. And that's a really interesting statement when you compare it to the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. Because there Jesus says, I'm always with you. Huh. It's kind of contradictory, right? Here Jesus says, you will not always have me. And then later Jesus says, you will always have me. <laughs> well, which is it? Is Jesus always with them or not? So let's work this out. Jesus was a man, the God-man, who was physically in the world in the first half of the first century. But as we see in Mark, Jesus will not always physically be in the world. And that's what he's referring to here in verse 7. Jesus, as we'll see in later chapters, is seized by the Jews. He's fastened upon the tree. He's killed upon the tree. He's taken down from the tree. He's wrapped in linen, laid in a tomb, and resurrected from the dead. Then he was with the disciples for 40 days. Then he ascended to sit on the right hand of the Father. So the disciples have Christ physically in person for three years. We now also have Christ through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus prepared the disciples for this fact in John chapter 16, verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the body of Christ right now is in heaven. His body has been physically relocated from earth to heaven. But he is still with you. 
He is still with the church today. Christ has sent the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm talking about when we testify of Christ in the way we carry out ministry. We, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, have the Holy Spirit with us. And because the Holy Spirit's invisible, you think that's a meaningless statement. I mean, of course, you wouldn't admit that, but you think that's a meaningless thing. Okay, the Holy Spirit's with me. Okay, but life's still hard and things aren't going my way. And... No, you have the Spirit with you, and that means something. And so the way you carry out ministry should be done in the reality of the Spirit is with you. The Spirit is ministering Christ to you right now. The Spirit is empowering your obedience. The Spirit is giving you wisdom and discernment in that sticky situation when you cry out, Lord, help me, I have no idea. Well, you know what? He will help you, and he'll give you an idea. We testify of Christ in the way we carry out ministry. To have the majesty of Christ ministered to us through the Spirit means that we have the victory of Christ applied to us through the Spirit. That's Paul's main point in Romans chapter 8. He says, you are more than conquerors because you have the Holy Spirit. So we don't need to pray for victory. We need to pray from the standpoint of victory. We don't need to pray for victory. We need to live from the standpoint of victory. We need to minister from the standpoint of victory. The victory's won. And now we have the Spirit, and He's working that victory out through you. And so what that means then is, in your life, you've got that besetting sin, you've repented, and then it's before you again, and it tempts you. What do you do? You testify of Christ in the way you overcome that sin. The light can overcome the darkness. You have the victory of Christ through the Holy Spirit in you right now. It's not hopeless. It may be difficult, but it's not hopeless. The light will overcome the dark. We testify of Christ in the way we carry out ministry. Are we going to lay down and be defeated, or are we going to fight the good fight of faith, as Paul commanded us in 1 Timothy chapter 6? This is what it means for Jesus to give us the helper. Remember John 16. For Jesus to give us the Holy Spirit who is with us now. And so this has meaning not just in your personal walk with the Lord. It has meaning for our ministry collectively as the people of God. So what does this mean for our ministry as the church? You know, Jesus hasn't walked around Huntsville like he walked around Galilee and Judea. Jesus hasn't gotten into a boat and, and pushed out onto the water of Big Spring Park and then taught a large crowd of Huntsvillians. But Jesus does minister to Huntsville right now through the church. And it's not just because you have the Holy Spirit. Augustine said, you have Christ through the sacrament of baptism and through the food and drink of the altar. And so when the church does its work, it too is ministering and testifying of Jesus Christ. Through the church, Christ openly declares his word. Through the church, Christ actively does his work. Through the church, Christ washes and feeds his people. And so we testify of Christ in the way we carry out our ministry. And so in conclusion, remember that in the place of the temple is set up a new Passover, a new covenant of Christ's blood. And in the way we bury the dead, we testify to the truth of the new Passover. In the way we care for the poor, 
we testify to the truth of the new Passover, and in the way we carry out our ministry, we testify to the truth of the new Passover. And what exactly are we testifying to in the new Passover? What exactly are we testifying to in the new covenant of Christ's blood? Well, you remember in the old Passover, they dashed blood on their door, and the angel of the Lord passed over them and gave them grace and spared their firstborn. And this was an act of God's love for the Israelites. And in the new covenant of Christ's blood, remember, God still loves sinners, which means God loves you. And God, because of his love for you, has made a full, perfect, and complete provision for the salvation of sinners. Jesus Christ, in his shed blood, made atonement for the sin of the world by his sacrifice. In his death for sinners as their substitute, Christ obtained eternal redemption for all those who believe in him. The claims of God's broken law have now been satisfied. Christ has suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, so God can be just and justifier of the ungodly. There is now, through the new covenant of Christ's blood, a complete remedy for the power of sin, the almighty grace of Christ. And the Holy Spirit quickens believers and makes them new creatures, giving them a new heart and a new nature. So it's not just that you're forgiven, it's that you're transformed, you're made new, and the Spirit is with you as you walk in the newness of life. There is now a complete remedy for the guilt of sin and the precious blood of Christ. There is peace and rest of conscience for you because of Jesus Christ. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's God's gift of the new Passover. Let's close by praying together. O God, most high and Savior of sinners, your greatness is unsearchable. Your goodness is infinite. Your compassion unfailing and your mercies ever new. We depend upon Christ's death. We rest in his righteousness and we desire to bear his image. May his love reign in our affections and his cross motivate our obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.